This is Don Myrera, and you're watching You Don't Know Shift. Or listen, let me tell you something. I never enjoy myself like I did with these two guys. You should tell your friends about it, even your enemies, because they won't be enemies after they listen to this. I love you. Welcome to You Don't Know Shift. I'm your host, Mark Schiff. And I'm Mark's co-host, Lowell Benjamin. We're two comedians who love to make people laugh and talk about all kinds of things. And even when you think you know someone, you may not really know Schiff about them. So we started this podcast, You Don't Know Schiff, to discuss with people what they're known for and the things they've learned along the way so that we can find out their techniques for success and fulfillment. And we guarantee some laughs along the way. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, let's jump in. Hi there, Mark Schiff here for You Don't Know Schiff with my co-host, Lowell Benjamin. And uh, today we are talking to one of my uh, best buddies for 35, almost 40 years. It was an amazing, amazing chat with my friend Maurice Lamarche. Don't you think so, Lowell? Yeah, this was a great interview. Uh, Maurice is an amazing person. He's very wise, very deep, and I, I really enjoyed seeing your, your friendship with him. It was really nice to see. And Maurice started out as a stand-up. He did that for many years, uh, but now he does a tremendous amount of voiceovers. It's really astounding how many voices he does. You, you hear his voice everywhere, trust me, whether you realize it or not. He does the voice for one of my all-time favorite cartoon characters, The Brain in Pinky and the Brain. He's done voices for over 100 episodes of Futurama. He does multiple characters on that show. He's actually won two Emmy Awards for that. He was the voice for Fruit Loop Serial for 37 years. And he was the voice on Lexus commercials for nine years. And dozens and dozens of other cartoons and animated series he does the voices for. Uh, trust me, you hear Maurice LaMarche all the time. Yeah, Maurice is just a great guy. And uh, I, was, I, I was so thrilled to have him on the show. And uh, it was such a good interview, and you know I'm, I'm not you know saying uh, it's you know I'm the greatest interviewer with Lowell here, but it was such a good interview that uh, it went longer than uh, we thought. It went over two hours, yeah. And uh, there's going to be a part two coming up. I, I like the way you you uh, phrase it. Uh, we're, we're subpar interviewers. Despite that, we managed to get two out of it. No, uh, but that yeah, but I can't sit here and go, you know, I, I'm the greatest interviewer that ever lived, and uh, you know what no. I'm saying, like. I always tell people I'm oh, I'm below average, not the worst. You'll see you'll see worse out there. Yeah, you know, I, I write comedy, but I never claim to be uh, Mark Twain. Right, and I've spent my whole life not listening to anybody, so it makes it makes it hard. I like to make a list of things I'm not to people. Yeah, as I'm doing exactly what they're watching me do. Yeah, like when I go up on stage, I'll go, "Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, what you're about to see is not nearly as funny as what you've seen." In the last three acts were on before me. Yeah. Uh, just keep in mind that those people were funnier than me. They're better yeah. writers than me. That's what I like to do. And then when I take a bow at the end of the night, I go, uh, was I right? Right. For closure. <laughs> I, I go up on stage and I say, don't worry. I'll be brief. Just so they don't panic. And when you do that, when you keep your word, there's thunderous applause at the end. of. Yeah. I've never seen such yeah. great applause when you tell them I'll be brief and then you are. Yeah. And then when people say, how was he? They say, well, he kept his word. He's brief. He's a, he's a, man, he's a man of truth. That's, that's the reviews I get as a comedian. So why don't we go, uh, go to Maurice LaMarche now? And, uh... Yeah. Let's, let's hear the, uh, part one, and then we'll uh, catch up at the end of part one. Here he is, Maurice LaMarche. 
Look nice, who we have here. Nice studio. Look who we have here, Maurice LaMarche. Nobody knows. From Nobody. Canada. Canada. <laughs> Canada. It's not like, you know, Neelan or Riser where they there's a following, they know, they do their, they go to clubs to see them. Maybe no, this will I'm, give them a clue. I'm just in your ear every single day and you don't even know it. Maybe this will <laughs> give them a clue. Mark, we have Maurice LaMarche here. Are you pondering what I'm pondering? I am pondering exactly what you're pondering. We're going to go back to the lab to plan for tomorrow night. Come, Pinky. <laughs> so, you know, you're in good company here. Like you said, Kevin Nealon yes. we had. We have yeah. Paul Reiser. We've got Reiser. Jerry Seinfeld coming up eventually. Fantastic. We have uh, 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 Wendy Liebman. We got Elon Gold. We had Bob Wall. Wow. Bob Wall played. He emceed my very first night in comedy. Seriously. Very first night in comedy. I, don't, I, I wrote on Facebook when our dear friend Bob Saget died. I told the story of how I really go back with him farther than almost anybody but his first wife, Sherry, because we met in line at the improv, waiting to go on for open mic night, uh, Labor Day weekend of 1977. You and Sackett. You and Sackett. Yeah, I was wow. lucky enough to be behind. I walked up just in time to get behind him in line. And as I recall, they made you wait like an interminable amount of time Sure. before they just Handed you a number. Sure. They I, said, I, here, here, this is when you're going on. And they gave you a time. And yet it was like, and Bob was in front of me, and yet he went on after me. And it was just this random, I don't know what it was, but, you know, and, and it was when, you know, Silver had the the New York improv, and, and I guess Bud was already out here opening the, uh, right. but Bob Wool was our MC. When and, you and Saget saw each other, did you uh, have, did, did that thing always come up? It was the first thing we first said thing to each other. About, right? It was always, whenever we saw each other, first night in comedy. <laughs> we just point you, first night in comedy. Yeah. You know, and and uh, that was just, I mean, I was, you know, I wasn't on his inner circle because I, you know, I fell out of stand-up, as you know, um, not to drop a giant nuclear heaviness bomb on this, but when my father was killed, I, I, I took it very hard. And I just, uh, it was the one thing I did that he was so proud of me for. He loved that I was a stand-up comic. I had the anti-comedian's dad. He mm-hmm. wanted me to do something different and special and don't be a work-a-day guy because he was kind of a rebel himself and um, kind of a rebel. He was a con man. Wow. God rest his soul, but this is what he did. So he says, I, I don't see you behind a desk. You're not a behind-the-desk kind of guy. And here I am behind a desk. Yeah, he was right. Time. You're not. And, and uh, But he said, he, you know, he, he, so when I told him, oh, Dad, I want to be a comedian, he goes, go go for it. Do do whatever you need to do. I'll support you, blah, blah, blah. I mean, he sent me down here and, wow. you know, <clears throat> he did the whole thing. So he really sponsored me, as it were. Kevin, Kevin Nealon's parents also. His, yeah. his father was very, very supportive. Very supportive. We're going to talk about all that, but let's go back to your humble beginnings right. to start because I want to hear about this. But first, about your dad. a great. Ah. Oh my, oh. <laughs> no, I'm like I'm like the Caesars of old. Hedonism bought in my ears. Except you drop your own grapes in your own mouth. Mm-hmm. You don't have the extra. I would egg. ask you, but you're very busy right now. I am busy. Mm-hmm. But I would do it for you. Thank you. First of all, let me just tell you. We go back. Maurice is one of these guys. Maurice has told me that he loves me more than probably anybody on the planet. And more than my own wife. And more than my parents. I'm telling you. <laughs> I do love you. I know you love me. and you- You're the sweetest, dearest person. And you've helped me with more things that I can't. I mean, I, yeah, I, don't wanna, I don't know if you want me to tell the audience how much you've helped me. We'll talk about all of that. All right. Because okay. if it wasn't for me, you know. <laughs> 
kind though. It's what Goodbye. you be. Like. But bye, Mo. And let me tell you, every time you tell me that you love me, it 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 touches me, and I appreciate it. And I want you to know that it's it, I don't take it for granted. And I love you too. Thank you, buddy. I love you. And too. I was thinking about that this morning. You know, the first thing that came to mind. I'm going to meet with Maurice. We're going to do this podcast, and uh, I know he's going to say he loves me. I do love you. I know you do, and I love you. So and I said it. I, I'll say it when when we're off mic and we're leaving, and I'll say it. Uh, I think you know. I don't. I don't know if I said it over when we got the coffee, but you know. And you also call me buddy, buddy, buddy. In fact, I have I have a thing. I'm I'm kind of like uh, I'm kind of like Zelig. Um, in that, in that, I, uh, I, I assume the personality of anybody I'm with. So if I start doing your voice, stop me. Just, just hit me. Go. You're doing me again. Because what I can do is I'll just stand here and I'll listen to you. And all of a sudden, buddy, it's unbelievable that you're you're here, and it's fantastic. You probably tell me you love me more than just about anybody else, buddy. It's unbelievable. Well, you know, I told all the story. You once left a uh, a voicemail for me. <laughs> And I listened to, uh, as me. As you. And Reminders I thought, for the day, I things I, you had to do. Yeah. And I thought I went from zero to 100% Alzheimer's in an hour. <laughs> because <laughs> I listened to this voicemail and I said, when did I leave that? <laughs> I, I don't remember this. Because I, I just checked it like an hour early and That's there was so no great. voicemail. And I said, oh my God, I, I've got to go to some brain clinic and, and, and check in here. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that to you. <laughs> Did you do that as a kid? Were you were you calling uh, your school, calling in sick, and sounding like your parents? No, you- I, no, because I, yeah, I was limited by my range. I would have if I could have, but when you're a child, yeah, no matter what you do, you can't get your voice down there. But I loved doing voices and vocal effects and things like that, even in school. Um, I, my very, very, very first impression was uh, Beaky Buzzard from the. Um, uh, the Bugs Bunny cartoon with the with the he's, he's a vulture and he yeah. captures bugs mm-hmm. and but when he flops his arms he goes and I saw that on the Looney Tunes or you know Merry Melodies when I was five and I thought it was the funniest thing so I thought and I was nervous about school uh, because I didn't do well from day one my mother used to say you were the perfect child. Until the first day of kindergarten, and all of a sudden you were a mess. And and it was, be- I mean, it was because I I had never encountered other people, not in large groups. I was frightened to death, so I thought the only thing to do here is to make everybody laugh. Well, what makes me laugh? Beaky Buzzard. So I walked to school going you know, the mind of a five-year-old. This is, yeah. These are the resources I have. What makes me laugh? I'll make them laugh. They can't hate me while they're laughing. Now, I'm watching you do that, and I see you, you kind of embody the character, you it's, know? It's called acting, dear boy. Is that what it is? Yes. Uh, no, I, I mean, yeah, I, it's something I've always done. I, I, I assume a physicality. Even mm-hmm. if it's not the correct physicality, I have to change my I, from myself to become- Elon Gold talked about that doing impressions, yeah. that he- kind of feels like he really embodies when yeah. he does Jay Mason or whoever Elon he does. Gold does the most frightening Howard Stern impression I've ever heard. I mean, you swear you're, you know, you expect Robin Quivers to start laughing. I mean, Elon is so talented. Maurice, but what I, I love think- about your, sorry to interrupt, but what I love about your imitations, you, you know, some of your old, uh, old standup, you turn around and as soon as you face the audience, like Mark's saying, you embody it, the audience is laughing before you say a word. Because they know you, you, you get the character so well, you don't even have to say anything. 
you know, and that's such a hackneyed thing that I, if Steve Schuster, uh, Rosie Schuster's brother, who I started out with in Toronto, hadn't already done the bit, I always thought it would be funny to see an impressionist who turned around, wasn't feeling it yet, and turned around again. And I right, wanted to do funny. that. But that was an ongoing bit. And Schuster, Steve Schuster, all the Toronto comics remember him as a legend uh, uh, because he was the most low-key guy, but he said the cleverest damn things you ever heard. And, um, you know, he, he just he, <laughs> he used to do things. Like he used to do impressions that weren't impressions. He'd do, he would do Orson Welles before, long before I did Orson Welles, but it was just because he had this great line. He'd go, Good evening, I'm Morrison Wells, and I'll narrate anything. And I just yeah. thought that was hilarious. Yeah. It was before Wells died, you know? So he's dead now, uh, Steve Schuster. So, so you said something interesting. You didn't have people around you when you were real little? You, like, this was your it, first? It was not a busy house. I had a little brother. I still have my little brother, yeah. Paul. But, I mean, it, it was just him and me and my mom and dad. And... I I just I was not a go out and play with everybody kind of kid. I wasn't like the get together with the neighborhood. You know, I, whenever I got with other people, it was always awkward. I, I don't know why. I and you did to go to a nursery thing. school before kindergarten. No nursery school. Where were I remember you going to a birthday party? Ottawa. This was Ottawa, Canada. I love Ottawa. And I remember going to a birthday party preschool, I believe, and we did pin the tail on the donkey and, and somebody thought it'd be funny to stick the needle in my, my ass. Wow. My little five-year-old ass. Children are very cruel. Children yeah, are, be, yeah. are monumentally uh, psychopathic and uh, to one another. And, and uh, so whenever I gathered with my quote unquote little friends, uh, it didn't go well. So when I, when I was exposed to like 30 kids at once, wow. I was terrified. In fact, I'm just having this revelation now here with you. you this is this is un- this is unbelievable, unbelievable, buddy. Because you you've actually helped me access something that uh, my therapist has never gotten to. So, and I know this, your therapist. You do know my therapist. He was a writer, and, and I went to him originally to become a uh, to help me with my writing. Yeah, well, that's at kind of what he specializes in creative issues, and uh, he he's a uh, juice like in roast beef, a juice, oh juice, creative issues. creative a juice issues. Oh, issues. Ish shoes. Those are a special brand of shoe. They're not quite a shoe. They're called ish shoes. They're shoe ish. So anyway, uh, you came from Ottawa. I did. Well, no, I came. I was. If we're getting the story right, I was born in Toronto, and like at the age of, I think, uh, two two years, two and a half years. I remember my brother was also in that apartment in Toronto. One of my first memories was my brother. Uh, coming home from the hospital and just going, well, I guess I'm not the star of the friggin' show anymore. Wow. I was narrating my life. You're not the star of the show anymore. <laughs> and so I, uh, uh, and then we moved to Ottawa just before school age. So I was like four, uh, four-ish. And I remember my mother telling me I was going to go to school. She says, you're going to go to a place called school. Oh yeah. I remember being in the kitchen and I was just really, you know, just watching her cook and, and she said, now, a school is a place where you'll be with other children. And I was like, mm-hmm, but you're going to stay there, right, Mommy? And, and well, you know, maybe the first day I might be able to stay a few minutes, but after that, you're going to be with other children. Hmm. And she may as well have told me she was going to fling me off of a cliff. Oh, God. I was terrified at the prospect, and I still had a year to go because I was four. I wasn't going to go there till I was five. So I got to build it up in my head. Wow. What this school thing meant. What, where's this place of abandonment? And of course, I went to Catholic school, 
So, you know, it wasn't just building blocks and no. all that. There was also heaven and hell. Catholic school pre-1966, which they call the Second Vatican Council. This is the one where they really kind of lighten <laughs> things up a little bit after 500 years. Right. But pre-1966, pre-Vatican Council, they were doing things like a Second Vatican Council. Sorry uh, for all the Catholics listening. Yes, I know you're all rushing to your, you know, catechisms. Um they had a thing where, I mean, you know, it was still a, a mortal sin to eat meat on Fridays. Right. And, uh, and, and uh, you could go to hell for venial sins as well as, you know, mortal sins. And all of this stuff was covered in kindergarten. I mean, they showed us wow. flashcards of Satan and flames. And so, I mean, you knew the, the way they showed you the difference at my school anyway between heaven, hell, and purgatory was that purgatory, the people were still dressed. You know, I remember one man in a tuxedo. Uh, and, and But the flames only came up to the knees. Wow. And they were isolated in certain spots so that you could like not, you were just being heated by the... Hmm. Hell was naked people with the flames licking their bodies as they're screaming upwards. And that was hell for all eternity, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Be amen. And uh, were so, you were you taught? I was that, terrified. I was terrified of uh, death. I, I, I was terrified of life. I was terrified of anything in between. Sleeping, all of it. I mean, just yeah. Were you taught that the uh, Jewish people killed Jesus? No, that was that never came up. How did that never come up? I just didn't. It just it, it just it just I, if they said it, I was too worried about my own death. I I was never exposed to anything anti-Semitic in Catholic school. So where do you hold religiously, uh, spiritually today? Do you, or do you? Religiously, spiritually today, I pretty much, I've run the gamut. I, 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 I got 98% through converting to Judaism. I, I did everything oh, wow. except, you know, they told me, uh, you know, I, I, I went reform first. And even that rabbi uh, told me that I would have to, uh, be uh, recircumcised, or at least the hatafat dam. The uh, even though in 1958 every male baby in the in North America was circumcised, they realized it was very sanitary, a good thing to do. You know, the, the Jews were onto something, and I was circumcised. <laughs> so he he basically said they ha they would have to recall. They would have to yeah recall they, your feet. There was a recall on my foreskin. <laughs> right. Wow. And, That's um, not good. Yeah. So they'd have to do like a lancet. <clears throat> and then collect a drop of blood. And I just thought to myself, you know, I don't know how many times in my life I have to let a strange man near my penis with a sharp object, but it's, it's I'm good. I'm good, right? I got all the knowledge, very nice, uh, very nice. And then there was the nakedness of having to go to the mikvah for my conversion, and then and then the the, the council of three and the, the so tests. So you only made it 98%? 98%. I didn't do any of the testing, the dunking, or the or the... The, the dip and the and the snip, as I like to call it. So I, I just said, you know, I'm, I'll Shabbos in my house every Friday. I will raise my son Jewish, send him to a Jewish day school. Uh, but that's as far as I can go. And the where I where I stand today is that it's it's for me it's the it's the big it's the big question that's too big for me to say with any certainty. I know what the deal is. The universe is vast. It's, it's vaster than my conception. Uh, I just, it's like a, it's like, it's like binary code is the closest. It's almost like huh. binary code is what the universe is. It's ones and zeros. God is one or is not zero. And I have to choose the proposition that for me, that God is. So, 
I can't define God. I don't know the shape of God, the will of God. I don't know if God's male, female, both, or neither. For me, there's just the great something. And that's where I land today. I choose to believe there's something rather than nothing. And I have to hang my life on that. Um, do you do prayers? Of, do you do any specific prayers? I do. I do. I do some prayers. Um, you know, mostly I do prayers in a little group. I, I get together with a bunch of people who are uh, pretty much every day who we're all going after the same thing, which is to live our life, uh, you know, on the natch, as they say. No drugs, no alcohol, nothing from the neck up. It's a spiritual uh, group. And there are prayers in there that I say that are very, very simple. It's just about you know, getting rid of self-seeking and trying to help another human being and especially trying to help other people, you know, if they cho- if they choose to live life on the natch as well. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I pray, I, I tend to pray for strength more than changing anything. I don't believe God rearranges the molecules for right. me because I ask, but I do believe God will give me the strength to deal with whatever the molecules do. At least for the day. For the day, at least. You know, I, 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 I pray for the people suffering in the Ukraine right now, but I, I can't say, God, please stop that. I don't know. You know, it's, I, he's certainly not going to do it just because I asked, but I do pray that the people going through that have the strength to deal with what's going on. Right. Well, it's a phenomenal you. story. I mean, where I know that this is going to, we're going to drop this, and it's going to, this is going to be old hat. Uh, but it's a phenomenal story of what's happened with this president. He was one of us. He was a comic, comedian, stand-up comic. This guy is a this guy's a hero. And a, I mean, let's face it, stand-up comedy takes bravery. You got to have a set of balls on yeah. to, to do stand-up. Sure. Sure. Um, but this guy is dealing with the world's biggest tackler right now. Yeah, he is. And, this uh, guy's rough. <laughs> I tell you, I tell you, it's rough. You know. So, hey, Vlad. Why don't you Rodney, take a break? Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah, we'll, Rodney we'll jump from that, from my, my upbringing to my time with Isn't Rodney. it incredible that a lot of people don't know any of these great old comics? That Well, I... I they weren't the, great old comics to us. These were like people These that were we, the masters. That we, we dealt with. We came along. Yeah, and we got to meet them. We got to go to their apartments. Yeah. We we got to, you know, sit with them as uh, their robes came open. Yeah, because Well, right. not, not... Let's face it. It's... it's that's Rodney. I mean, that's Rodney. Rodney, ha- Rodney Dangerfield, in addition to being a comic genius... Uh, had a propensity. He was a he was a terry cloth repellent. He had a force field around him that, that repelled terry cloth. He would walk. He would wear a robe almost twenty four seven, unless he was on stage uh, or you know out out and about in town. He was in a robe, and that robe could not. I don't know what it was a shape. Of his body would not stay closed. <laughs> they told me that on the set of Back to School, when he does that walk with his you know movie son from. Uh, you know, the dorm room to, to do the diving competition, they actually had to staple the <laughs> robe shut because it would not, not come open. Uh, it was a specific shape of his body, I think. I don't know, in addition to now, some weird radiological. Lowell uh, told me about, the, what was it about, the special that Maurice was in? Yeah, so tell us about everything about Rodney. So uh, I know you were on his, uh, the first time he hosted uh, the HBO, you know, the young 1985 Young Comedian special. And you also yeah. opened for him regularly, right? I was with him. I, I toured with him for a year and a half. Before me, well, okay, the first time I opened for him, Jim Carrey was his opening act. He, he, boy, I'll tell you, he took to Jim. He adopted Jim. Jim was like his son. I never had that closeness with him. But uh, I remember he came to Toronto and Jim 
got the he had the same manager as Howie Mandel, uh, a guy named David Holliff, and uh, and David David really uh, for a guy that you know had never done the business before, he just found inroads to everything, and he got Jim opening for Rodney at the biggest theater there called the O'Keefe Center. I think it's now called the Hummingbird Center, but it was the O'Keefe Center. It was where Camelot had its world premiere, huge theater, 4,000 seats. And uh, Jim went out there and of course killed. And Rodney said, you know, and then they, and then they spent the evening together riding around in a, in a, uh, in a limo. And Rodney just opened his heart up. This is the, to hear Jim tell the story. Right. He tells it of course better than I do. He was there. Um, so it's like they just formed a connection that night. So Jim opened for for a long time, but there was Valentine's Day of 1981. No, I'm wrong. 1982. Uh, he was playing San Francisco, and and Jim couldn't make it somehow. So Holliff called me and said he likes an impressionist. You go in there. So I went up and did it with four months. He remembered it, and then like four years later, I or three years later, I ended up being his regular opening act after Rex Meredith. Right. Um, Rex Meredith did something that. Did you do Rodney in your act when you mm-hmm. went out a Nova? No, I never could do him. But he set me. Even though I couldn't do him, he said, "Listen, man, I don't know if you do me or not. Okay, but uh, don't do me in your act. All right, they're already waiting for me. If you do me before I get out there, it's going to blow it. Okay, going to take away some of the excitement. All right, all right, you're okay. Okay, Mo. All right, you're, you're okay. Kid. Kid. So I didn't. But in that conversation. Like Siler in the old TV show Heroes, I I I absorb people's voices if I'm in the same room with them. So I immediately could do Rodney after that. I can, I understand the vocal tension. I know exactly what's going on in the sinuses in the back of the throat down here, and that's how I take on people's voices. I could never do Bill Bixby, and then one day I did a a pilot with Bill Bixby, a a, a, a documentary style pilot like from the same producers as Real People. He was in my favorite Martian. Yeah, in my favorite Martian and oh, uh, Courtship of Eddie Father. And the Incredible Hulk. He was right. the first Incredible Hulk. Well, he was the first Dr. David Banner. I could never do him. Then I did a pilot with him, and all of a sudden I could go, Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And I just, I suddenly solved Bill Bixby. I just get with people and... So well, what does that mean you absorb them? What, I don't know. I just take them in. You hear it? You feel it? I you hear it, it. I feel it. I know what's going on in the throat. I don't know how. I don't know why. There are people that I cannot do. Uh, and there are people that, you know, they just come to me. I just suddenly, can I, this be learned? Cause people have said to me, I can't teach it, but I, if you're of a certain, <laughs> I think if you're of a certain personality type and you've got the ear, you can do it. There are so phenomenal. Speaking, speaking of doing an imitation for somebody of themselves, uh, I saw when you did evening at the improv and you imitated oh, Johnny Carson and Johnny was there. No, he wasn't. They cut that in. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, wow. they did that. For, they, they, I'll tell you, the people at Evening at the Improv did pretty much anything, they everything and anything that they could to get me on The Tonight Show. They, they believed in me so much. The talent coordinator, Mary Downey, uh, was she wanted to manage me. She was so like, I was only here two months and I suddenly, this woman wanted to manage wow. me. And she was, mm-hmm. she believed in me so much and God bless her. I, I, I you know, many comedians of our era take their hat off to Mary Downey for putting it on. I mean, that show ran six years. It was a lot of people's very first television. And Mary and Rupert McNee, who was the son of uh, Patrick McNee, who was John Steed in the 1960s Avengers. At one time, he was like uh-huh. one of the most famous men in the world, uh, Pat Patrick. 
they just they, so they 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 had me on an episode where Doc Severinsen was the host. They had me on an episode where Ed McMahon was the host, and they cut in Johnny to him laughing at my act. And and but he the truth is he was there another night. He okay. came down to watch somebody else, and they just cut in that audience cut to. I couldn't get on the Tonight Show to save my life because one man, Jim McCauley, loathed me, <clears throat> right. couldn't stand me, and once threatened. My wife's best friend at the time was a young woman named Debbie DuPerry. Yeah, I remember Debbie. Oh, Debbie DuPerry. Sure. She used to be a waitress at the, uh, at the uh, Improv. Now she's a, a big-time wardrobe person on Broadway. I think she just retired, but... Um, Deb was kind of, you know, good buddies with Jim. I won't say I won't say dating, but they, they, but they were good buddies, and they went out on Jim's boat, and they got out and they dropped anchor. And Deb's, you know, they were making a picnic lunch out on the thing, and Deb says to Jim, "So what is it you've got against Maurice Lamarche?" Hmm. <laughs> and, and Macaulay said, "I will not discuss Maurice Lamarche with you." If you continue in this line of questioning, I will pull up this anchor. We will ride back to shore and we will never see each other again. He just hated me. And you don't know why? I have no idea. I think it was just that I tried too hard and I got him out to see me too soon. You know, I kind of gauged my, you know, what I needed to do by what Howie Mandel needed needed to do and was doing. And I wasn't where Howie was. Mm -hmm. You know, Howie, Howie was, had this genius. He just made this quantum leap to be, he came out fully formed uh, with standup. I had a lot of learning to do. I, I often say that I quit about three years before I would have been terrific. I was merely good. I was a good comic. I was a serviceable comic. I think I got on the Young Comedian special because I did have a good relationship with Rodney and my manager, Larry Robbins, God rest his soul, and uh, and and uh, Rodney's manager, Estelle Endler, God rest her soul, and God rest Rodney's soul, um, uh, were all, he, they, they got close. So I think it was almost more of a favor. Not that I wasn't terribly up to the task, but I think I might have been the least funny comic on there who was on that special with you okay well here's yeah, i mean come on here listen to this list okay first of all our dear friend bob saget god rest his soul and our dear friend louis anderson god rest his soul um sam kinnison god rest his soul so a lot of and and, and rita and, redner and was on there rita was on it uh the great harry basil who runs one of the best comedy rooms in vegas not the best comedy room in vegas um tropicana the at the trop um um of course, then, Gold, now Brad's going to come after me. Richie Gold was Richie on. Gold was on. Uh, Brad Yakov. What's wrong with my comedy room? You know, <laughs> and, but yeah, uh, uh, who else was on? Yakov. Yeah. You, did you just say Yakov? Lola, yeah, Yakov Smirnov, Bob Nelson. Yeah, yeah, Bob Nelson. Wow. Uh, I mean, it was a killer episode. Yeah, and um, did you Bob know, pass? Is Bob, no, Bob's still with but, us. But your your imitations got... were were amazing. You know, like the imitations. You thank you. I'll. Lowell, I'll take that compliment. Thank you. That's what I always worked on was the imitations. Where I suffered was, am I saying anything? Do I have a point of view? Am I coming from anywhere? And my act was still at that point of, I'm just going to put on a bunch of silly little skits like celebrities before they became famous as when they were waiters, you know, and I would have Johnny Carson go, good evening. Ah, good evening. And welcome to, welcome to Chateau Maine, uh, where the specialty house is smoked salmonella. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, which isn't funny to any anybody uh, right now listening because 
you know, maybe some people our age remember that Johnny Carson, but some people, I mean, right now I use Johnny Carson as a character voice in cartoons because the audience has never heard his voice. Right. You know, I heard you do Walter Brennan. I heard you do Walter Brennan in one of the voices. Yeah, you're right. Right? No, it's I don't do a great. No, no, you did one. I saw, I saw a reel, and you were doing something that sounded. I did, son. You, I don't remember what I did it for, but I did it. It was in that 18 minute reel that I saw. Really, I don't even remember doing Walter Brennan for it. Let me ask you about Sam Kennison because when I started, Sam was just coming up, and if people don't know who he is, look him up on YouTube. Yeah, there's not a tremendous amount of stuff on him. Uh, but there's enough, and he is considered one of the great comics of uh, our well, generation. Well, anytime you change the flow of the river, as it were, he was the first guy to really connect with uh, anger and do it in a funny way. I mean, he was, he was, uh, I mean, he, he embodied, <laughs> he embodied uh, anger at God, anger at marriage, anger at wives. Um, and, 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 his rage was hilarious, hilarious because it was impotent. You knew he wasn't going to hurt you in the audience, but he, he was, he was likable with all that rage. With all that, he was, he was very likable, um, lovable. Even you just took him yeah. into your heart. And if you got to know him, you did. And he could, he could turn every now and again, you know, I mean, there were, there were drugs. It's no, it's no big secret. Right. Um, and, um, you know, but, but you know, if you caught him, uh, you know, during the day before the partying really started, I mean, he he was, he was a sweetheart. When I first met him, he was very kind to me. He was just coming up, and he was. Was he managing the? Uh, was he managing the Westwood Comedy Store at that time? No, this was before before they had the Westwood Comedy Store. We were just doing the uh, the Comedy Store was okay. first, and he would get on late every night. And he was one of these people. Who, every night when I would see him, he would go, "How are you?" But he really meant seemed to. I believed he meant. Yeah. How are you? How you doing? Right. And then the last time I saw him was in Vegas. He was out of his mind. He had a gun, and he was looking to kill somebody, um, another comic, for doing something with his girlfriend or something like that, and he just completely just lost it. Um, it was sad. And we had tried to help him. I think you were part of that group. I, I, I most definitely was, and in fact, I brought him to uh... – that that place that uh, you know, I I took him to his first uh, gathering of people who go not drinking every day. Right. I remember we took him out to breakfast one time right. on yeah. La Cienega Boulevard. There was yeah. a place after we all got together and talked about not drinking, and then uh, he 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 saw me. I bumped into him at the Palm. It was actually, uh, I believe we were. I don't know. We had the back. We we had the back room. Howie Mandel took out the back room for somebody's birthday. And Sam was at the front in his regular booth. And he came back to say hi. And we hadn't seen each other in a long while, a couple of years. And because, as I said, I kind of dropped out of stand-up and just kindly, you know, went, you know, did the voiceover thing full-time. And, you know, we, we hugged and we talked and he talked about He was The thing that really set him off was his brother's suicide. And, you know, he was, he was really, you know, kind of uh, drowning in, in the, in the grief of that. And rightfully so. And I related, I, you know, that, that how, how I'd done the same and that I'd tried to drown my sorrows of my father's murder in drugs and alcohol. And he, and, and I'm so, I was sober almost a year. And he said, well, you know, if you can do it, maybe I can do it. If this thing works for you, maybe it'll work for me. I said, good. So meet me tomorrow at this place on Robertson. And, uh, 
And I thought he'll never show up. He'll never show up. Right. And I'm standing outside and he comes bombing down the street and he'd been up for f- till four in the morning party. I mean, his eyes were red and he was, he, he was, he was, uh, you know. Do you remember st- how you used to get booze at four in the morning? You know that story with him? With him? Yeah. No, how? Well, they would rent a limousine and it would come fully stopped. Oh, wow. Of course. With booze in the limousine. So, cause every, every bar was closed in LA at two o'clock and you couldn't get anything at seven eleven or wherever they were. So he'd rent the limousine and have a full stock bar, or they'd get a hotel room in the the mini yeah, bar, which was fully stocked. God, God bless you him. know, say what's incredible is, uh, wasn't he killed by a drunk driver? That, they, they, when I, when you ask the definition of irony, I go, well, the way Sam Kinison died. That's, that's right, and that's I think irony. he might. I, I he, think was, he was he was sober. trying to he was trying to yeah he was he was you know he did his version of a detox, which was to go to Hawaii and remain completely dry, and he had just landed back in town and was headed up to. Uh, Laughlin and the stretch of road that he was on was like a trench. It was like the, one of the, like the death star, you know, the, 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 you couldn't pull off the road. It was no, there was no side to go to. It was like solid, a solid wall of earth. And that's where the kid, you know, fell asleep behind the wheel and just plowed into his, his firebird. What happened to that kid? You know, know, the state of being so relaxed and asleep from all the alcohol probably saved his life. Right. Uh, You know, unfortunately, Sam got the got the steering wheel right in his gut and it just it it ruptured so many organs. He didn't have a chance. God rest his soul. So as long as we're talking about this stuff with, you know, people, uh, you know, you didn't mention your sister. Um, I didn't because uh, chronologically we aren't there yet. Um, but, uh, yes. Um, uh, and my sister was killed in a car accident as well. Um, this is a comedy podcast. It's everything. Okay, good. We're just talking. So, all right. Uh, my, my, my dear little sister, I had a baby sister from my dad's second marriage. Uh, What's her name? her name was Jacinda Louise LaMarche. And she was the kindest, dearest soul you'd ever want to meet from a baby on up. There just wasn't, there was a, there wasn't, there was no guile in this girl. I mean, she was just kind and sweet and smart. And, uh, you know, one weekend, uh, she went to, uh, um, she, she, they, they, she, she did a drive between Toronto and Montreal and, um, with a friend and, you know, they stopped at a roadside, uh, joint to get some uh, burgers and she, she kind of overate, you know, and, and, uh, she didn't put her seatbelt on because mm. she was so full. And uh, and they were fiddling with the car radio, manual car radio in those days. She was only 18 years old. This was back in 1990. And, uh, you know, she's trying to find a station in between cities. No satellite in those days. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she went off the road and onto the gravel and just this flipped the – it was a, a, a samurai, a Suzuki samurai, which is not – they're not known for their safety anyway. Sorry, Suzuki. I know you never hired me to be your – your voice right. uh well i was sorry when i heard it then and i'm sorry now yeah it was it was it was horrible and uh you know she she died immediately uh, the, the girl who was riding with her though i'm still friends with she 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 survived because she was strapped in and um very banged up though and you know the amazing thing is i mean i always use my father's murder as my big you know get out of sobriety free card you know uh if you had had your dad murdered the way I had my dad murdered, well, then you'd un- you'd, you, yeah, you would drink too. You would use too. But when my sister died, uh, I, you know, I, I, I had learned how to, that life throws you everything. 
in deaths and in sudden deaths, horrible deaths, uh, you know, and, and sitting with people while they die. I mean, I've done, you know, death is a fact of life. You know, right. it's what we do with the, in the space between, hi, I'm here and I got to go. That is really, to me, what's important. And you, you just, you land on the joy wherever you can. Right. Obviously, mourning is significant and something you can't be in denial about. But, you know, you also have to, I think I had to come back to life right. and rejoin life. With a great Cubby Selby, the writer, friend of mine. Yep. Um, I knew Cubby Mill a little bit. Yeah. He said that uh, once you're born, you're in the lottery. That's, that's right. really it. So we're on this topic and uh, you mentioned your father a few times. Yeah. Yeah. He was gunned down by his best friend. Um, who, you know, I, mean, I, call, I feel so stupid saying that because obviously your best friend doesn't do that to you, but you know, lifelong friend, they'd known each other since they were eight. Wow. And, uh, you know, my dad had carried this guy all of his life. Uh, you know, every time he got into a, you know, found himself broke, my dad got a couple of got a thousand here, 2000 there. He bought him a stake in a, in a, in a business. He, a bar in San Juan, um, you know, and then and then one day my dad said no more, and I uh, you know couldn't deal with that, and so he came and shot him. He was on an escalator. He was my dad was going down the escalator at the Prospectors and Developers uh, 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 Convention, which is held every year at the Royal York Hotel in Toronto. Yeah, and my father had just told this guy to get out of his life, and he went. He he brought the gun to the hotel, and he just went down a pair of because you know I sat through the trial. I know the timeline went and got the gun out of his a checked uh, bag and came back and just shot my dad three times now i remember i i know that you used to go up to canada every year because they wanted to parole this yeah yeah they they, they have very uh you know they've they they are very liberal laws in canada about uh you know there was no uh there's no death penalty um and so he got second degree because they couldn't prove uh, lying in wait. And uh, so, yeah, I've gone to, I'd gone to three parole hearings where I just had to sit in the same room as my father's murderer and listen, listen to him, you know. After how many dance. years did he come up for parole? He came up for parole the first time in, uh, in uh, I think it was 19, gosh, my son was born. I think it was 1995. And when did the murder take place? Uh, 1987. It wasn't too long. Not too long, no. So understandably, this obviously impacted your life, your career. It, that's kind of when you- It did. I mean, when, when, after my dad was murdered, uh, I just I just couldn't get up and do stand-up again. I tried a few times. And every time I did, somebody died. Like I was trying to make a comeback to stand-up <laughs> and my little sister was killed, you know? Wow. And uh, the next time I, I tried, uh, my, my, my father-in-law died. And then the next time I tried, my my mother died. And, you know, I inferred from that God- this was back when I still had like the idea, the belief that God actually does stuff to or for you. I, I, so I thought he just doesn't want me to do stand up. He just doesn't think I'm funny. He just keeps <laughs> picking off people I love to keep me from getting back out on stage. Why am I doing Jerry Seinfeld? I guess because it's such a painful <clears throat> thing for me to, to face. So tell us, uh, and the Dalai Lama came into the story here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, that's a long one, but you know, we got some time. So I'd gone to three parole hearings, and uh, I always presented a victim impact statement written. And that that took it out of me every single time. But I could never speak. And the they changed the laws in Canada in, let's see now, 
2003. And uh, I was going to be able to deliver my impassioned speech to keep him in. And um, the thing is, though, I was I was bone dry. I'd already written everything could be written. I'm I'm flying up to Vancouver, and I'm late for the flight, and it's okay because the flight's delayed. And I get I'm the last I'm the last guy, the last passenger to you know I'm running through the airport, and you know I get to the jetway, and they go, "Don't worry, sir, we're we're waiting for another passenger." So I guess like this, and then I go not go down the jetway. But before I go down the jetway, I look out the window and a limo is pulled up to the foot of the of the jet. And so I go down the jetway and there's like a guy in a suit with a you know earpiece and he puts up his hand and goes, Don't don't come any further, sir. Just just wait there. And up through that little tiny little doorway on the jetway where the guy with the earmuffs usually comes out, you know, the one that's directing the play, is the Dalai Lama. It walks past, gives a little wave like thanking me for waiting and then goes in and then they're waiting for him to get seated. And I said, wow, is that, are you like part of his detail? And he goes, yes, sir. It's a, it's my honor to, I always, uh, you know, I'm on the, the his holiness's detail whenever it comes to the United States. I go, wow, that, that must be really something. He goes, he's the real deal, sir. He's the real deal. And I said, wow, that's, that's amazing. And he said, uh, he was at the century Plaza hotel last night, sir. And, uh, you know, he he was exhausted. He'd flown directly in from Dharamsala, and he was he was wiped out. But there was a little girl in the uh, in the audience who was developmentally disabled in the wheelchair, and he could have walked off stage and backstage into his room, but he came down into the audience and and uh, put his you know said a little prayer on her, put his hands on her, and shook people's hands and went out the audience way. And I was like, wow, that's that's impressive. And so I get on the plane and I'm I'm flying. Uh, I mean, the jet's flying. I'm just sitting there. Um, and uh, I pull out my computer to try to write this impassioned victim impact statement that I'll be able to orate. And I can't, I can, nothing will come, you know? And all I can think of is you're on this, 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 you know, plane in this tiny little cabin, this cylinder, 20 feet away from one of the greatest spiritual minds in the world today, you know? And, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if you could talk to him? Just be relieved of this knot in your stomach. And the little voice in my head, and the, you know, my thoughts turned to, well, how do people get to meet the Dalai Lama? And I thought, well, I guess they write a letter. And so I thought to myself, let me write him a letter. So I asked the flight attendant for a piece of paper and a pen. And I don't. I don't let her see what I'm writing because I figure if I sign it, your holiness, I'm dead. She's going to walk by and go, oh, no, 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 sir. He's not to be disturbed. So I don't I don't give it a salutation. I just go, please forgive this interruption, but forgiveness is the reason I'm writing to you today. Uh, I've, I've, I've been told by many spiritual people that uh, I am... Uh, the, I'm in danger of drinking again if I'm not rid of the resentment of the man who murdered my father. And I went on a little bit. It was just a two-pager. I mean, just, just front and back. And then I folded it up, and I leaned across the aisle, and I s- said to one of the monks, because it was all monks and me, and one TV producer, actually, who, who was next to me, 
<laughs> he was just going over scripts and just very self-important. Didn't didn't even pay attention to the fact that he was on the plane with the Dalai Lama. It's just, you know, he was doing some, you know, Vancouver TV show. And he'd gone to the bathroom. So I leaned across the aisle and I said to one, the, the, one of the monks, I said, how would I get a note to his holiness? He goes, oh, just give it to his secretary. I said, which one's his secretary? He says, guy in the green suit. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. So there's one other guy that's not in the saffron note. So I get up and I, I hand it to this guy and he goes, he goes, mm. and I go, I uh, have a, I have a, a note for him, Woody Allen. Right, Excuse me. I have a, I have a note for his holiness. It's unbelievable. It's, <laughs> they wrote it. In, it's a shit list. I wrote it in actual shit. It's unbelievable. No. So I, I said, I just wanted to, I, I t- I'm going to give it to you. It's a very intimidating guy. Like I used to eat sushi at Sushi Nozawa. They called him the sushi Nazi. He was like the soup Nazi was based right, parsley sure. on him. Uh, but by the way, he's a lovely guy, Chef Nozawa. But you know, he had a reputation for throwing people out for asking for lemon juice on their uh, fish. And I, I, I'm just going to leave this with you. And he, I gave it to him. He goes, Ugh. he takes it. Well, I'm standing in the aisle now, so I go. Well, I, I, I don't have to go to the bathroom, but I better make it look like I was, you know, sure on my way to the bathroom and just happened to drop off a note for his holiness, the Dalai Lama. And so I walked to the bathroom and I'm standing there and there's, you know, talking to the flight attendant for a second, there's somebody in there. And sure enough, I get tapped on the shoulder. I turn around and it's the guy in the green suit. The, the, the secretary goes, he will see you now. I go, you're kidding. He goes, no, no kidding. He will see you now. <laughs> I said, all right. So I go back and I, I, so there's a, there's a monk next to his holiness. And then I realized that the first two seats on the other side of first class are empty. They've bought these seats so that nobody will bother the Dalai Lama and which I have now done. And he moves to one of those two don't bother the, the Dalai Lama seats. seats. Yeah. And I sit down next to as I'm as close to him as I am to you right now. Uh, you know, the 14th reincarnation of the Buddha of compassion. And he looks over his glasses at me and he gives me this impish look like. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> he's like, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I feel like I'm about to talk to Yoda. You know what I mean? It's like, of course. unbelievable. He, uh, so he says, your letter touched me very much. And I said, Really, your holiness? Oh, yes. I related to your letter. And I said, really? He goes, yes. When Chinese army and secret police came into my country, my monastery, they killed and tortured many of my friends while they were looking for me. My friends spirited me away. And many of my friends were killed and tortured. And I was very angry. I was I was so angry I knew that it would prevent me from being good Dalai Lama. I thought I must be rid of this anger. And I said, well, oh, I, I, I totally relate. He goes, yes. He says, so I knew that I had to be rid of this anger. So I pictured Chinese army man's life. I'll do it with my left hand because it's more on camera. But he did it with his 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 right. He goes. I picture life of Chinese, uh, Chinese army man like this. Here he is born. Here is where he kills. But here he is infant, teenager, goes on first date, 
graduates high school, joins army. Here is where he kills my friend. But here, rest of life, chance to become good person again. And then I said, so you're saying then that you, 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 you can hate the, that you forgive the sinner, but not the sin? And he goes, no, by forgive, I do not mean forget. You can never forget what this man did to your father. I can never forget what Chinese army man did to my, my friends. But by forgive, I mean you have a prison cell, torture chamber in your mind for this man, do you not? And I said, yes, I do. You do horrible things to him in there, do you not? I said, yes, I do. Yes, I do, Your Holiness. He goes, I want you to open the door of your prison cell of your mind and let him walk out. And like I, I did a meditation on that. Like as he said it, I just pictured this guy I've known all my life sitting on a bench in my brain, and he just kind of like gets up and walks mm. out and out of my thoughts. I don't know how the hell that happened, because I, I believe you retain everything. Every every brain cell has got something etched on it from your life, but somehow or another, I felt my shoulders drop, the knot in my gut relax, and he was gone for a minute. And I said, I said, I, I, that's, I said, that's amazing, Your Holiness. I said, thank you. And I said, I said, um, you know, it's so interesting what you said about the life of the charm, Chinese army man, because, and I'll tell you, I know exactly when it happened. It was the same week, the week after Saddam Hussein was captured in that hole in the ground, because I told him the following story. I said, my son talked about, he you know, he, he said, dad, and my kid was eight at the time. He said, Dad, it's kind of hard to imagine Saddam Hussein as a little kid, isn't it? And I go, right. why, why, buddy? Because of his big scraggly beard. And he goes, no, because he's such a bad guy now. But at one time, he must have just been a sweet little kid who played with his friends just like me. And the Dalai Lama, like, burst into a laugh like that, like he, like, like he was doing a 7-Up commercial from the 1970s, right. you know? He was like, ha, 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 ha. He goes, your son, very wise, very wise son. And I said, thank you. Thank you, Your Holiness. I said, I don't want to keep you any longer. I said, um, I said, but I just want to, I just want to know, should, should I go to the parole hearing? He goes, I do not think you should. I think you should leave it to your God and do not, I think that it will work out the way it should work out, but I do not think your father wants you to go through this anymore. And I said, all right, well, I thank you, Your Holiness. And I, he said, he, he said, I'm going to pray for you now. And he took my hand. He's got the softest hands of any human being I've ever felt in my life. And 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 he t takes my hands and puts them up to his 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 forehead, says a, a, a prayer in, in um, I guess, Mongolian. And I don't believe in, like, healing energy and all that stuff. I really, you know, it's just a little too you know, right. whatever new agey for me, but I felt something. I felt a warmth go into me mm -hmm. from that. And he let me go. And I said, I, I promise your holiness, I will pray for the, the, the completion of your mission and for your strength and good health. And he said, then that is enough. And he, I got up and I Incredible. went back to my seat and I, he never looked back there again. When he got, they whisked them off the plane. I wanted to thank him for the sense of peace that I had for the rest of the flight. And, you know, it comes back every day, every day, as I start my day, I think about my father's murder and the murderer and all of that. And and every day I, I 
take that meditation right. of just letting him walk out of the prison in my mind. But I'm not the Dalai Lama. He comes back yeah, every course. single day, you know. But when somebody cuts me off in traffic, I, I, yeah. I also let them out of the prison. Did you, in fact, not go to the parole hearing? I didn't go to that parole hearing, no. Well, thank you for that. That story is, is quite amazing. So yeah. thank you. Let's change gears again. Well, so if we can talk, uh, you know, again, to like Mark says, switch gears to, uh, you know, other things. I can't things. switch you- gears. I'm now too depressed <laughs> discussing my so father's murder. You, uh, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, your IMDb is, I assume you're busy all day long. You have it just, over it just 400 seems, credits. We're going to talk about my IMDb. We just th- talked about meeting the greatest. I know. That's what I'm saying. It's a hard turn. My, yeah, I know. It's a real hard left. <laughs> well, it, it really I'm, is. First of all, I want to I correct myself. I, I, when he said that, he did say into my country, he meant Tibet, not China. But right. when China, when they crossed over and basically took over Tibet. That's what he was referring By the to. way, just geography. It, it, you can always beat me on in Trivial Pursuit if you <laughs> steer me into a geography, geography question. I'm just totally effed. If it you. isn't such a hard left from where we can because now we're about to talk about you have one of the great gifts of anybody in this country, this ability to do what you do. So it's all within the same spiritual realm. Well, we're about to talk. Lowell had a specific thing. Go, okay, Lowell, I didn't mean to cut you off like that. No, no, I, I just wanted Please to Please let know. me out of the prison of your mind. <laughs> no, I just me. wanted to, Please. you know, because you, you said, you know, again, understandably, you know, you were you were in stand-up and you, you had, you know, life issues yeah. and it, it altered your, your whole approach. And, you know, personally, one of the greatest animated characters, in my opinion, hands down, is the brain and Pinky and the brain. And it's... I remember hearing it, you know, back when it was on and thinking this, these characters are so well voiced and so well written and they're so, they're, kids can like it, adults can like it. It was on so many levels. And so I, I'm just wildly impressed by that character and would just love to hear your take on how you came up with the voice, what it was like. And anything okay. you'd like well, first to of all, uh, thank you for that. And on behalf of all the people who wrote Pinky in the Brain and and Tom Ruger, who conceived of the, of Pinky in the Brain, uh, based on two writers from Warner Brothers Animation and ha- Hanna Barbera, named Tom Minton and Eddie Fitzgerald, who were partners, who were an, a, sort of almost an unlikely odd couple, and he just mm-hmm. kind of trans transmuted them into these two lab mice trying to take over the world. I uh, luckily never I had never met Tom Minton because if I did, I would have done his voice and I would have been, that would have been the end of it because Tom, a great guy and a, and a, and a genius, one of those, he's one of those repositories of facts. I mean, he's just so bright and, but, but he, but he speaks in a monotone that goes on very, 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 very quickly. <laughs> and he rattles off very quickly like this. And it's like that, that character would not have sustained for a cartoon show. So I'm very lucky that I didn't meet Tom till after Pinky and the Brain was cast. Because when I saw that uh, model sheet of the brain, he just exuded Orson Welles to me. And I went, okay, they want me to do Orson Welles here because they know I do Orson Welles because whenever there was a lull or I needed to do a mic check, I would do the Frozen Peas commercial, which I had memorized (laughs) because Phil Proctor from the Firesign Theater gave me a cassette of it New Year's Eve 1984. And I just listened to it for two years until I could go do the entire thing top to bottom, including now what is it you want in your depths of your ignorance? What is it you want? Um, you know, it was this, this frozen peas commercially done in England. He did the wine commercial he, too. He did no the wine. wine. Aha, the French champagne has long been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne inspired 
by that same excellence. And and so I thought, well, they obviously created this character for you me. You left a great line out. There's no we we sell no we wine. We sell no wine before it's time. <laughs> um, so I thought they've obviously created this character for me. They know I do wells and do them really well, do them ad nauseum. And so I just gave them what they wanted, but they had no idea. They weren't thinking wells at all. So they thought I was some kind of inspired uh, genius coming up with this great take on the lab mouse. Hmm. And it was really me just going, yeah, it was my hubris that got me the job, <laughs> you know, thinking they'd created a character for me. So um, that's where that's where the voice comes from. But I have to tell you, I've been the beneficiary of brilliant writing on so many shows that it's a cut above. It's just great comedy. Uh, I would say that, of course, about Pinky and the Brain. Um, I would say it, of course, about Futurama and uh, Disenchantment uh, and and The Critic and uh, a show called Captain Simeon and the Space Monkeys, which is uh, a little-known show that didn't, never got its due, but it was just... We had DC Fontana write an episode. I think Harlan Ellison contributed an episode. Really good science fiction. And uh, real Ghostbusters in the in the 80s. Uh, you know, that, that literally Harold Ramis... God rest his soul, um, oversaw, you know, and approved all the scripts along with Danny Aykroyd and, yeah. and, and Ivan Reitman, God rest his soul. So we getting something here from, from, everybody dies. If you're getting that from what I'm saying, every time I say God rest his soul, yeah, we all, we all, we all take the dirt naps. eventually. Wow. Wow. That's comedy, buddy. It's unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, I did a, uh, a little cartoon series. You myself. did a great cartoon series. <clears throat> I two my stupid one, dogs. Two stupid dogs. It's I a my classic, one. though. You and Brad. Yeah, yeah. We did a, and I made up the voice. You know, there was no voice to be had. They said, "Let's see what you have," and I just uh, went into this. <clears throat> like, I, it, it's hard because it was very high register and it was years ago. But I, what do you want to do? You want to go, boy, walk, walk. There it is. I gotta, I gotta eat. I was always very excited. Yes, yes. And out of my mind, and Brad was it. the opposite. Of course, oh, opposites. Right. Yeah. I think you're. Overreacting. I think you're overreacting. I think you're overreacting. Everybody loves Raymond. <laughs> I, I, I can't get down where Brad is. He's, you know, the, those pipes exist in their own universe. My first day of doing a uh, the, this cartoon, I was hired by a, a wonderful guy named Donovan Cook. Love Donovan. Donovan's a wonderful guy. He came up with this. He saw me at the improv one night, and he said, that's the guy for a little dog. He, he loved my voice, but I never did anything like this before. Yeah. He hired me. And I remember, I never forget this. My first day of recording, everybody was staring at me They're just <laughs> in, in the booth. There's like four of us. And then Brad or somebody says, uh, Mark, have you ever done this before? <laughs> and I said, no. And he goes, Oh, how'd you get this? <laughs> and I felt so insecure, so horrible. And then, uh, other someone else uh, we went on again and Donovan's in the booth there's a booth where the producer and every and he goes Mark don't worry I have faith you will get it and I, I, <laughs> boy if that won't make your sphincter squeeze up I so <laughs> I called my a mentor Cubby Selby that night and I said right. listen Cubby I'm quitting I'm not going to do this right. I, I can't go on this is and then the next day I went in again and they kept questioning me like how did you get this? <laughs> it was really horrible. And I called Cubby again. He goes, this is the deal. You don't quit. If they want to fire you, let them fire you, but you don't quit. 
And it turned out to be a very successful show, and I got a handle on you it. You did 65 episodes. Yeah. You got it at some point. Yeah, and uh, Donovan was happy with it, and I would just walk in and breeze right through it. Yeah. But I did request the script the night before. Right. I don't. Do you do that? No. I mean, they give it to me, and I almost never read it because I don't, I don't want to make decisions intellectually. So I will look at the cast sheet and see what characters they have me doing. Like right now, we're back doing Futurama. And uh, we've got, I can't believe, it's unbelievable that this show has been resurrected yet again, but you cannot keep uh, a good show down. And um, By the way, you got a chance. I know I worked with Carol Channing and yeah. you must have worked with some of the biggest stars in the world on these voice jobs, right? Um, I've, I've worked with some very, uh, very noted, notable people and, and like, uh, like who? well, uh, okay. I mean, this is one, you, you know, again, it's generational, but I mean, for our generation, was there anybody bigger than Ernest Borgnine? Not only was he right. McHale for McHale's Navy, but he was Marty. Marty. He won an Oscar for Oscar. crying out loud. Right. He'd never done a cartoon before. And he sat next to me dur during a pinky in the brain. He was playing my father. Brain finds his parents, or at least they, they turn up. I, he, I, either he looks for them or they turn up, but they're field mice. But he figures, he gives them these backpacks that allow them to ver verbalize and vocalize like him. And uh, Ernie uh, was so wonderful, uh, but he, he couldn't figure out how to turn his page without going. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes in the middle of a take, and I, I got to teach him the Frank Welker technique of just turning the corner up on the upside and just pulling it out and lifting it and setting it down quietly. Wow. And you can actually get through like a three, four page run doing it this way. And Frank taught me and I passed it on to Ernie. And then Ernie ended up, uh, you know, having a long run on the SpongeBob show. Um, and who else, who else did you work with? Well, I, Roddy, okay. Again, generational, but Roddy McDowell played my yeah. nemesis on the show. He played a, a, a genetically enhanced hamster named Snowball. And I learned more about professionalism from Roddy than, than almost anyone else. He was going through cancer treatment and never let on. He was perennially early. He showed up always wearing a, a sport coat and a pressed shirt with an ascot. And he was a quintessential gentleman. I, I couldn't believe that this guy and he had such great stories. Whenever there was a little break, he'd tell a little story about, you know, the 1950s, the 40s, being best friends with Jane Fonda, you know, and and yeah, he was noted for his Malibu uh, beach parties and, 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 you know, just having wonderful stories about Elizabeth Taylor. And, and uh, he, he was great. And I just thought that I, I got to be more Roddy like in my, in my, in my ways at least show up on time for Christ's sake. Uh, maybe not an ascot, but show up on time. Uh, he was great. Um, I'm trying to, you know, I mean, I'm trying to think David Carradine. We worked with David Carradine on Captain Simeon and the Space Monkeys. Um, another real, real pro Malcolm McDowell. Wow. No relation to Roddy, but Malcolm was on uh, Captain Simeon. Bit of the old Druka. Yeah. I mean, the whole cast of Star Trek did an episode of Futurama. That was phenomenal. Um, Trying to get Anthony Hopkins on something though. Yeah, that'd probably be the pinnacle. Like It'll be great. I've played him on the critic, but I can't uh, I can't Can I hear you, Hopkins? Because I know I, I I know him personally. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. You used to do that thing in a restaurant when you um would order lamb. Oh the <laughs> 
Were you with me when I would do that? I would just go, I'd order lamb chops and I go, uh, excuse me. Um, you call the waiter over. I call the waiter over. And go, Could you, can you hear this? <laughs> and I'd put my ear up to the plate and then I'd hand it to him and he'd go, I don't know, I was, it's the silence of the lamb. <laughs> <laughs> and I got more food spit on, I'm sure, <laughs> as a result of that little bit. I met Tony as he told me to call him many years ago, I met him doing the Alan Thicke show, not the one down here, Thick of the Night, but there was a time where Alan Thicke had a Canadian talk show. He took over from Alan Hamill, mm -hmm. and it was a panel. Talk. It was a, basically a mock-up of The Tonight Show, but it was aired in the afternoon. And I was lucky enough to be on an episode with him when he was promoting The Elephant Man. Which and was produced by Mel Brooks. It was. It was. And uh, and he, 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 in the green room, he was friendly to me and very kind afterwards. But I, because I'd done impressions and he loves impressions. He's an impressionist too. And so when I did my act, uh, he he said, have you, have you ever thought of, uh, have you ever thought of, of being a, a, an actor? Because the way you do those impressions, you really could be a good actor. And I said, well, thank you very much, Tony. It's very, very kind of you. And he, I said, or, or Anthony, he goes, no, no, please call me Tony. 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 So what was it like when you rebooted Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain? Was that like an emotional thing to get back together? Well, it really, you know, first of all, we, we kind of knew it was coming. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we didn't kind of. We, we knew it was coming for a good couple of years. Uh, I had another showrunner that I want to show I was working with, and he'd taken a meeting. Um, he told me that he'd taken him off. I can, I can tell it now. It's years later. So I was working with Justin Roiland on a Rick and Morty. And Justin told me, he said, listen, I got some good news for you. They're thinking of rebooting Animaniacs because I just went in to meet with them about being the showrunner. And I passed because it's just not my, you know, my kind of show. And yet Justin, the reason I work so much on Rick and Morty is because Justin watched Pinky and the Brain and Animaniacs every day after school. Mm -hmm. And he told me, like, this is this is like when he's like 14 years old. He's and he would he would draw and draw and draw. He's one of those, you know, people that just has to draw. He said he promised himself then that if he was ever lucky enough to have a cartoon show, he wanted to work with me, Rob Paulson, Tress McNeil, and Jess Harnell. And he's been mm -hmm. true to his word. One of us one of us has been in almost every episode of, of Rick and Morty and right. Solar Opposites. So Justin told me about two years before we finally got going, he said he had a meeting, but he passed, didn't feel he was right for the show. And and we, of course, ended up with the wonderful Wellesley Wilde to take the show into the into the 21st century. Um, but uh, he gave it just the right amount of edge. Hmm. You know, I mean, brain is older and crankier and a little <laughs> bit more willing to use death rays. You know, so he's just a little edgier in the reboot. But getting to do that was um, Rob Paulson and I go around doing Comic Cons, and we've done it in the space between the old show and and now. And it's gotten, of course, explain in the last, what that is. Comic, Comic Cons are comic book conventions, and originally there was really only a handful of them in the country. The, the, the granddaddy of them all being San Diego Comic Con. These are big draws. People come. Well, I mean, they 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 started out as like just being in one function room in the 1970s in the basement of a of a, of a hotel in San Diego, but it grew to the, the San Diego Convention Center. 140,000 people really go to this thing pre-COVID anyway, and um, you know we we um, you know we go, we do panels, we sign autographs. And people just, you know, saying, we would definitely want, we want you guys to come back. Oh, when are you guys coming back? We love it. So, you know, um, we, we were, 
we were stunned that it would finally come back. And, uh, you know, we kept the show kind of alive by always doing the characters for anybody coming up to us. When we did our panels, we would take out old scripts and read them and sometimes have people come up and recast the episode with them as the secondary characters. And so for us to officially play those characters again, I remember when we did the first episode and I finally, and I said, Pinky, are you pondering what I'm pondering? I turned to the engineer and Wellesley and I said, I never thought I'd get paid to say that again. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. And it was, it was uh, just fantastic. You know, we've done three seasons. We don't know if we're going to get a fourth. Uh, If not though, Dayenu, you know, it's, 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 it's enough. Do you Uh, watch these shows? I do. I do. I do. I do. Well, not everything I'm on because that would make me a narcissist, but uh, I watch the, the quality stuff. I watch the Futuramas. The disenchantments. I watch the pinky and the brains. Do you ever watch it and think I would, I should have done it differently? Yeah, constantly. I go, oh, God, I didn't hold long enough. I, I needed to just, you need to give that just a, a, a hair more, you know, grace note right. of a of a slow burn or something like that. You know, the, but you know, unfortunately, animation has to move fast, so you can't always right. do the arched eyebrow with the. So you and I once talked in and movies, the transition from yeah. what you're doing here to the the big screen, right? Um. Well, I've done a few movies, but I I I I got to be uh, in uh, I got to be in a movie called Wreck It Ralph. I played uh, I played uh, uh, Root Beer Tapper, the bartender, mm-hmm. um, and then I got to be in the sequel. In the first Frozen, I played the king. I played the girl's father. Didn't know that. Yeah. Don't don't feel it. Conceal it. Don't let it show. These gloves will help. <laughs> so, um, uh, in the second one, I guess they wanted to go with a celebrity. So, let me ask you that uh, question about celebrity. Do people actually go to animated movies because a celebrity is in it? I don't know. I honestly, I've don't. thought about that a lot. Like, I don't I know said, that I've gone to anything yet because a, a star is in it. I, I well, used to joke were, that if they ever do a Pinky in the Brain movie, they they'll probably bypass us to get Peter Dinklage and Russell Brand as Pinky in the Brain. And of course, I'm, I'm going to slice my wrist open for putting that out there into the universe because I'm sure somebody's going to hear and go, you know what? Let's do it. But Peter Dinklage, that's a brilliant idea. Nobody's hotter right now. Yeah, but I don't think people would go for that reason. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't think, I hope not. So that was uh, part one of uh, my buddy, my good buddy. I love this guy, Maurice LaMarche. And he was kind enough to come into the studio yeah, I mean it's no small thing these days to uh, you know to in LA going anywhere is always a, a feat, but uh, you know in a pandemic to to leave your house and to to come into the studio to record, uh, you know uh, it's it's a it's a testament to your friendship and it's really nice yeah. to see you know that you have friends for so long. Now you use the uh, no small feat, right? You said yes because they have to walk, and as as you know. There, people don't use their feet in Los Angeles, right? That's that's and they all walked here, right? They all walked. It's even like miles and miles, no. like 20, 30 miles. Yeah, Maurice walked uh, thirty-one miles round trip to get to my office. It was no small feat. Yeah, it took like a day and a half, as you know. <laughs> I also saw the Dalai Lama, but I saw him at the uh, temple in uh, Temple Sinai, I think it was, on uh, Wilshire Boulevard. He, he went to the uh, Jewish temple and spoke. He 
went on this tour and I remember somebody saying he, he was going to visit Jewish temples because he was finding out how we were able to forgive after the Holocaust. And he needed to learn how to do that with the murder of all his people in Tibet. Hmm. Huh. It was it was difficult for him to uh, not. I, I don't know if we actually forgave the Germans for that. I don't know if you can actually forgive them, but we were able to move on. That's right. for sure. Right, right. And that's, a, that's obviously a very, very saying. heavy topic. I thought you were going to say Jewish people are known for forgiving. And in general, I don't think is the case because if somebody like you know, takes the last Danish or something like that's it for like 35 years. Someone's mad at their sister. No, that's it. So there we go. That was Maurice LaMarche. And uh, I love that he came into uh, the office. So that completes part one with Maurice. We are going to uh, release a part two because the interview went so well and it was so meaty. Uh, we didn't want to just kind of uh, release it all in one big episode. So we're actually going to break it into two pieces so please stay tuned. Uh, we'll be re releasing part two shortly. Can you say that it was so meaty, considering I'm a vegetarian and a vegan? <laughs> I was trying to stick I'm just to wondering, you. can you can you use it to come up with another word now instead yes. of it was meaty? It was like a hearty vegetable soup. Doesn't work as well. Let's stick with meaty. <laughs> you, you were right the first time. I was wrong. I apologize. Thanks for tuning in. You don't know Schiff. Please follow us. Please give us a review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for being there, folks. And I uh, re really appreciate you spending time with us. Bye.